Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. The Hoover Institution at Stanford University is one of the nation's preeminent research centers dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. Throughout our 100-year history, our work has directly led to policies that have produced greater freedom, democracy, and opportunity in the United States and around the world. The worldwide pandemic has caused us, like everyone else, to change the way we share our research. We will be bringing you these regular online briefings from Hoover Scholars. We will also take audience questions that you can submit online at the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from Hoover Institution Senior Fellow John Cochran. Before joining Hoover, John was a professor at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. You can find more of John's writing on his blog, The Grumpy Economist. John, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's a mixed pleasure to be here, Tom. <laughs> great, great. Well, listen, John, I know, you, let's get right into it. I know you've thought and written a great deal about the issues related to the coronavirus. How do you approach the problems that have emerged uh, from this pandemic? Good. Well, so I'm an economist and will focus mostly on the economic issues. Uh, of course, economics and public health are now uh, somewhat intertwined. Um, and, and I always like to start from first principles. So what's going on? Um, why is the economy collapsing and why are the markets are cratering? Uh, my first thought is that this shouldn't be a problem. This should be like a snowstorm or uh, you know, a long vacation. Uh, we all go home, we watch some Netflix and we come right back when it's over. Evidently not. And so why not is the question. And the answer is, you know, it takes two seconds to figure out the answer. Uh, the debt clock does not slow to stop. Uh, if we all have to stop all businesses for, for a month or so, um, businesses have to pay their rents, their mortgages, their debts, their bills, their salaried employees while they got nothing coming in the front door. Um, people have to pay their mortgages, their car payments, they have to pay for food, um, while they uh, many times have nothing coming in the front door. So if you're not careful, uh, a, a shutdown is can turn into an a financial uh, uh, calamity where both people and businesses are, are going bankrupt in, in a big way. And I think that's what the markets are worried about. You can see, for example, all sorts of credit markets are, are, are skyrocketing are tanking. The big picture is um, it, this would be fine if all of us had kept three to six months of savings around in cash, uh, ready to just sit it out, but we didn't. Um, most of our businesses are uh, have a lot of debt and most people don't have that kind of money around. So what you're seeing in the markets is I think pretty clearly a scramble for cash. Uh, markets want, want, people are selling what they got in order to, to get through the next couple of months. So uh, with that insight about what's going on, this isn't a regular recession. It's, it's, a, it's a government imposed in many cases shutdown uh, that, that people got to be able to weather because we don't have enough savings around. Uh, the obvious thing for policy to do is to avoid widespread needless defaults, firing, bankruptcies, uh, as much as possible, put our economy in mothballs so it's ready to start up again roaring the minute the, uh, the crisis is over. Um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so that means basically we're going to get savings from people. So, uh, and, and that's what's happening. I think that's where our government is, is converging. Um, the government can help uh, people to get loans uh, to keep going. They can help businesses to get loans to keep going. But loans um, need to be paid back, which is important discipline. Uh, you only ask for a loan if you really need it. And then we can get more money to the places that, that really need it. Our government has a special ability to borrow in, in bad times that none of the rest of us have. And so it's appropriate for it to do that. Second, um, forbearance. We're already seeing that. Uh, for example, uh, the Fannie and Freddie will have now will now let you if you've lost your job. You, you don't have to pay your mortgage for a couple of months. Uh, stop the debt clock all around to the extent possible. Now you don't want to send. If I stop paying my mortgage, the bank then is is bankrupt, and you just send the problems upstream. So that it takes 
some thinking. And that too is uh, in our regulatory system, that too is, is good things that's going around. We don't need stimulus. Um, you know, maybe that word is being used uh, to things that are useful for other things, but in, in 2008, you could argue the problem was people needed cash to go out and spend to get the economy going. Uh, that is absolutely not what the economy needs now because the, the stores are closed, uh, the cruise lines are closed down. Uh, so the economy doesn't need stimulus, it needs uh, enough cash for people to keep going and not, not go bankrupt. Um, similarly, yes, uh, on insurance, uh, unemployment insurance, social programs, uh, you know, those are the useful things to, to keep people going. Uh, I would not uh, count on, on rate cuts and quantitative easing to do much. Again, that's macro stimulus. Uh, what we need is to get the cash, the, the lending uh, in, in the place where it's needed. Um, big industry bailouts, I think, are, are dangerous. And that is something that I think we're seeing the political process start to digest uh, better to, to, um, to, to let companies uh, borrow money where needed. Even you and me, the IRS could let us borrow against our future taxes. Uh, the IRS is very good at collecting money in case uh, you haven't noticed. Um, if, if you had ever dealt with them on that aspect, you'll find out how good they are. Uh, and going forward, I think, so now we're in a shutdown. <clears throat> our governments have, our state governments in particular, have pretty much everything non-essential is shut down. We need to move quickly from that to um, a, a more, not the sledgehammer approach, but the scalpel approach to uh, our governments need to figure out how to let uh, the economy keep going in a virus safe way. Some industries can keep going easier than others. You know, where, where you're meeting a lot of customers, you need a lot more rules about how, how to do it. Um, but simply a blanket shutdown, I think is untenable. It's, it's costing us an enormous amount of money. So very quickly, uh, how do we get it going? And my last thought before we move to questions, um, I think this is an important time to learn lessons. Um, this is not the first pandemic. Uh, this is uh, the first one that's gotten people's attention in a big way. Uh, there will be more. The 20, every era of globalization leads to new diseases spreading around the world. Um, so I think uh, certainly the shocking amount of unpreparedness we've seen in our government. Uh, let's, not, let's not throw stones about it, but let's learn the lesson that we all need to be more ready for next time. The, the, the rules of our programs that we're having to rewrite in a panic need to have those pandemic exemption clauses. We need to know how to run an economy as efficiently as possible in a virus safe way. We need um, you know, the, 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 uh, the vaccines around, the ventilators, the masks, and we all need a much more robust economy. Uh, things could shut down for three to six months. Listen to that corporate boards. A lot less debt, a lot more resilience in your operations uh, is going to be needed all around. So with that, Tom, why don't we uh, move to taking some, maybe you have some questions or we can take some. Yeah, I do, John. We have a lot of great questions and I want to remind everybody to submit your questions on the tab on, at the bottom of your screen. But I wanted, uh, before we answer the questions, John, could you help everybody understand the magnitude of the cost associated with slowing the spread of the virus, just in terms of foregone economic activity? Yeah, uh, big, <laughs> gazillions. Um, on the direct costs, you know, the, the stimulus bill they're talking about now is a trillion dollars. That's, that's real money. It's money that uh, will have to be paid back by taxpayers eventually. Uh, GDP is about 22 trillion a year. So let's, let's do a back of the envelope. Suppose you shut down half of the economy as, as non-essential. That's a trillion dollars a month that this is costing us. And view it that way. Uh, view it as if our public health authorities had said, guys, I need a trillion dollars a month to fight this. That, that's how much it's costing. And I think that really uh, raises the bar for us to think about how to do things a little more efficiently. Just shutting down the economy for three to six months is an enormously costly way of going about it. Yeah, exactly. The uh, another question you you kind of you're reading the newspapers like everybody else, and you're seeing the sausage get made in our in our national legislature around this the um, the bill to try to support the economy through this crisis. Get graded or, or tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. Uh, well, I think we all um, need to jump in with a little patriotism. <laughs> our elected officials are in a hard spot. 
they were caught unprepared. And in every war and every crisis, um, the response is going to be pretty rough and ready. This one is also pretty rough and ready. But I do think we see the discussion happening in Washington and, and some common sense emerging that the instinct to just send people lots of money is, is politically popular because people vote. But I think uh, all the discussions I'm seeing that, that lending is much more efficient to keep the economy going in this circumstance than just sending money. I think we're seeing that. We're seeing the, uh, the, the stimulus bill is, is falling a little bit apart on the question of corporate bailouts. And I think all of our lessons from 2008 on corporate bailouts are worth uh, remembering. A lot of the objections are good. A lot of the objections aren't so good. Um, but if you're going to put taxpayer money into corporations, then you do have a right to say, well, wait, what are you going to do with that money? Mm -hmm. And uh, Democrats and Republicans want to do different things with that money, which is where it turns into sausage. Yeah. And that's where I, I, I sort of think lending is better than bailout for a lot of reasons. And, and we're seeing that emerge from the political process. Got it. There's a kind of a, maybe this is an inside baseball question. Um, who's best to help now or what kind of help can be provided by the Federal Reserve banking system versus our elected political leaders? Yeah, um, the Fed can move quickly and there's a tendency to want the Fed to do everything, but the Fed is and must remain a politically independent agency. So the idea of the Fed sending us checks or the Fed directly giving money to companies, it might seem easy. They can print the money, they can get it there tomorrow. But it is a, it's a terrible way to go because then the Fed uh, just becomes a political agency like others. So the, the way things are going, for example, this morning, the Fed announced a deal with the Treasury. The Fed's going to print up a lot of money, give it to the Treasury, and the Treasury is going to lend it to companies. Uh, and, uh, and the Treasury then takes the risk that it doesn't uh, get paid back and the political risk of who it's going to. And that's entirely appropriate. The Treasury is part of the administration. If the voters don't like where it's going, the voters can say something about it in November. Um, so I think that's a good division of roles. Fed, Fed lends, Treasury hands out. Then the Fed can stay independent uh, uh, rather than uh, being the one who's deciding what the winners and losers are. Got it. The question from David, John, will corporate bonds be safe or is there an expectation of widespread defaulting? Corporate bonds are never safe, and that's why you've got a higher interest rate going in. Corporate bonds shouldn't be safe. Now, to some extent, we are, uh, like in 2008, there's a tendency to, 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 over, to overthink the difficulties of bankruptcy. If, if you are a person who got a nice high yield on corporate bonds uh, in a bad times is when you're going to lose money, so they shouldn't be safe. Yeah. Now, corporate bond markets are in a tailspin because no one want to take, wants to take risk right now. Uh, so, um, oh, the, the illiquidity of markets in bad times is, is a, uh, it's a problem. It's one where the Fed is stepping in. Shouldn't step in too much because, again, we're, we're, this is the mild one. This is the, this is the yes, it is the mild one. The, the worst one is coming. Mm -hmm. uh, we want incentives for people to keep a lot of cash around and be ready to jump on those buying opportunities and provide liquidity to markets. Yeah. Uh, so corporate, it's a big sign of people are worried about a wave of bankruptcies that, uh, that corporate debt markets are in such trouble. Um, and it's right for the Fed to do something to keep it going, but we don't want the Fed to just take over corporate bond markets and lend willy-nilly to everyone, because yeah. then what's the point of having a market? Yeah, interesting. Here's a question from Dom, uh, John. It's, uh, and I know you've done work on this because it has to do with how we restart the economy. And his question is, which industry should restart first and who will be the big winners and losers from that policy? Oh, I hate to be sick. I mean, I'm the grumpy economy. The winners and losers are going to be the ones with the best lobbyists, but let's not. <laughs> <get that joke. laughs> um, the industries that should restart first are the ones that can do so in a virus safe way. Uh, we need really to right now start merging public health and economics and figure out who can restart without, uh, without, without uh, causing the disease to get worse. So, you know, I don't want to think about a cement factory, but it seems like the sort of place that ought to be able to have protocols in place that they, they can get going. Um, uh, so I, I think our government really needs that. That's the prime thing right now is the rules for how do you restart uh, mm -hmm. Uh, and and uh, let I 
the phrasing of the question that sort of says, well, the government's going to allow A, B, and C to reopen according to how important they are. Oh, boy, that's a, that's a dangerous one. I'd rather see, here's the protocols, uh, and, and then get going when you can do it in a virus-safe way. Make it public health, not political, yeah. uh, political uh, clout. I mean, so that sounds like it might favor small business, right? Businesses that might be able to operate without gathering a lot of people in certain places. I know you use the dry cleaner uh, example often to explain this. Yeah, and you know, we're already seeing that the, uh, this is why they need to get a handle on this quickly. Every business is now calling up their legislatures and saying, hey, we're an essential business. I saw arts and crafts stores were in there lobbying to be, we're essential because right. you know, it's gotta have something to do during the shutdown. Uh, that's that's not a way to do it. Uh, small versus large is actually a. Uh, um, I think I think we spend too much effort on small versus large as as just sort of a cut. I mean, businesses that have a lot of that bring people together, that's going to be harder to get going. Uh, they need to figure out how, as, as they already have. Businesses are doing a great job of this, by the way. Uh, lots of businesses put together all sorts of protocols about how we're going to do this. The government having shut them down, the government now has to sort of approve their plans for how are we going to open again? How many people can be in the restaurant? Uh, you know, can you run an airline, but you got to put people in alternate seats? I don't know what it is, uh, but I think that's that rather than size. Um, you know, there's lots of large businesses that don't have a lot of money, and there's lots of small businesses that can weather the storm. Lots of large businesses that bring people together in very dangerous ways. Uh, you know, cruise lines are a large business. Sorry, guys, it's going to be a while. Uh, um, and, uh, and, you know, there's lots of small businesses that are both safe and dangerous. And the safety of it, I think, is, is the number one criterion. That's great. I mean, looking forward is kind of a trade-off between lives and livelihood at some level. Uh, looking at the experience around the world. Well, I can't tell that there is a problem that that is true and we're not allowed to say it. I mean, it is a fact. If we're going to spend a trillion dollars a month, uh, that has to be not just to save two lives. I'm not a politician, so I can say that in, in person. Uh, we, uh, there is that, that trade-off. It's not infinite. Uh, we have to save as many lives as possible, of course, but a uh, trillion bucks a month for one life. Uh, our political system can't say it out loud, but that, that, that's not tenable. Uh, interesting. These startup policies, there have been a couple places where the virus has diminished, or at least the spread has diminished, the China and South Korea and other places. Are there examples of startup policies that have worked effectively there? Or I know, I know the, the world and the news is moving so quickly. I don't know if you have any information to share about that. Well, from what I've read, uh, uh, China has stopped. There is some good news. It's not inevitable. China, with some fairly draconian measures, seems to have stopped the spread of this virus. Uh, Taiwan and Singapore are being held up of models uh, of what they did. Now, um, there's a social cost as well as an economic cost. So uh, you have to have a very intensive uh, public health system. I test everybody like crazy. Um, people who are positive are going to get isolated. Um, People are, the, the current worry is that the, the emergency rooms will be overwhelmed. And unfortunately, people in your and my demographic, Tom, are much more likely to end up in emergency rooms. So there's a strong case for let the 20-somethings go back to work safely, but isolate people who are likely to cause trouble. You know, retired people have money coming in and are much more likely to cause to need an emergency room if they get it. So uh, there's a case for uh, limiting people's movement. Uh, those countries did a lot of contact tracing. Once you found it, they go look through who you are and, and they, uh, you know, China, <laughs> China knows when you've crossed a street. They, they had a text app that was telling people, oh, you brushed into somebody at a crosswalk who had this thing because yeah. they're watching where everybody is. Well. In a crisis, vital civil liberties are curtailed. Mm. And then we claw them back hard after the crisis. And that's a hard reality that I think is true because you don't have the right to go out and get sick if you're gonna then use one of those scarce ventilator beds. Yeah. So uh, um, without getting too much into detail, there's a fairly intrusive uh, regulatory set of steps that need to be done on people's personal lives and economic lives to allow us to keep going and, and contain this thing. But it all has to be temporary. And that's, I think our government understands that all these stimulus bills end December 31st. Yeah. Uh, but that is, that, that's just the way of crises. I wish it were otherwise. 
Yeah. There, there are a couple of questions that are responding to your initial uh, dialogue having to do with, you know, we need more equity. People need to have more savings. One by Tom is asking whether you think this crisis will cause people to behave differently with respect to the saving consumption decision. There's another interesting question by uh, Roger, which has to do with supply chains around the world and whether or not this episode will cause governments and societies to think more clearly about the resiliency of their supply chain, i.e. have multiple sources of goods, maybe be less dependent on single countries like China, et cetera. What, what's your take on that? Well, I certainly hope so. Now, we are not as a country wonderful about learning the lessons of the last crisis and moving on. Uh, in many ways after 2008, where we learned that our banking system was, was vastly too financed by debt uh, it's pretty much been back to risk on, let's go have fun. Um, but certainly the lesson that should be learned, I think in the broader historical context, we've seen, you know, we've seen SARS and MERS and Ebola and so forth. Uh, we are living in an age of repeated pandemics, repeated new diseases. Uh, this one is bad, the next one is going to be worse. So. We certainly need, I think it would be much better for us if we could learn this lesson. Businesses have real more robust supply chains, mm -hmm. uh, relying on different places in the world. Uh, everybody having a break glass in case of emergency set of here's how we keep going safely in the event of pandemic. Uh, governments uh, having that break glass in case of emergency ready to go. More savings, um, you know, businesses that, uh, Share repurchasers are big in the news, and, and I've been writing in favor of share repurchases for lots of reasons. But share repurchases that just reduce equity and increase debt and make the company much more closer to bankruptcy, uh, that's a bad idea. Our companies need to rely more on long-term debt and equity and less on uh, short-term debt so that they're not uh, in trouble. That's part of the resilience. Uh, keep more masks and ventilators around. Yeah, they're collecting dust on the shelves a lot of time, but you know, spend one or 2% on, on extra savings and resilience uh, and we'll get through the next one. <clears throat> in keeping in the, uh, along the theme of how this is gonna change society, uh, Stephen has a question. Do you expect long-term structural shifts in the economy, whether from market factors or government intervention? Uh, yes, I think it's a good time to uh, think about that. <clears throat> um, we certainly are seeing in many ways, I think shifts is a good word for it. The economy isn't just sh uh, shutting down. Uh, <clears throat> Amazon's hiring, grocery stores are hiring. Uh, there's lots of places that even in, in the shutdown, there's a shift from some things to other things. Uh, will air travel come back to what it was? Um, Hoover is learning how to do, uh, um, yeah, learning how to connect to our uh, our world by internet. Um, so there's, I think there's some opportunities there. Um, so yeah, I, uh, viewing this not just as a once uh, event that then is over, but as a wake up call that we live in a world where this will happen over and over again. Yeah, I think there will be changes in, in how the economy works. Yeah, Glenn. Otherwise, so you asked about government. Yeah, there's not too much government mandated change. Uh, there's already a a desire, let's bash China and cut ourselves off from China. Uh, I think that's that's uh, government directing which industries are good and bad is always a bad idea and uh, I think would remain a bad idea. But lots of different opportunities as people's preferences change. Uh, I think that's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, Glenn asked, do you have, have you given any thought uh, as to your worst case scenario for the economy? Oh, uh, the worst case scenario. So the scenarios start with the health scenario. How bad is this really? And that's something that we, we're still learning. Um, the worst case scenario is that uh, we stay on lockdown for three to six months or more uh, until the whole health thing passes. The worst case scenario then leads to lots of people being fired. Uh, businesses, not just chapter 14 bankruptcy, which is just a reorganization, stockholders lose their money, but uh, chapter seven, uh, but liquidations, businesses that just don't exist anymore, whose ties to their employees are gone and just are unready to start up. Uh, so uh, a long shutdown, poorly managed, that leads to businesses and employees not being there when it's time to get going again. Uh, financial collapse going, with, uh, uh, going along with it. 
Uh, that would be the, the real nightmare scenario. Let's, let's hope that doesn't happen. I think the markets are halfway in between these two things and, mm -hmm. and a rush for cash, which is why they've been so much more hit than, than one would have expected. Yeah, interesting. Uh, have some uh, questions about sectors of the economy, John. Uh, Gollum asks, uh, how do you anticipate private capital markets to change, particularly in private equity and VC, uh, that are sitting on large pools of dry powder? Ah, well, I hope they are sitting on pools of dry powder. Uh, the great stabilizing effect of pools of dry powder <clears throat> is something we don't pay enough attention to. Uh, so if, if they, there's a moment in here. March, I think all of us, all of us say, boy, I wish I had sold in February. <laughs> and I wish I had bought in March 2008. Uh, there's a bottom here where the pools of dry powder are going to come in really boost the economy, provide the, the lending and investment we need to get going again and make a ton of money in the process. So uh, good luck to you guys and uh, uh, good, good luck to timing it just right uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, what indicators will kind of convince you that the market is starting to turn around and the economy is starting to recover? Well, uh, so uh, um, good. predicting the market is really hard to do. And uh, everyone looks like a genius after the fact. The market right now, why is it so volatile? Why is it so shut down? Because it's, it's batting between two scenarios and it doesn't know what's going to happen. It could be all by summer and, and things are, and we're back to going. It could be a long, long shutdown and then we slowly get back. It could be a disaster. The market's batting between those two things. And I don't know which one is going to happen. When it, the bottom happens when the market becomes convinced this is over and, and when they're right that it's over. Um, you got to take your bets in this game and not listen. Uh, the first investment advice I would give is not listen to people like you and me offering investment advice. <laughs> <laughs> we are still working for a living after all. Well, you take risks. You are paid to take risks. Now, right now, there's an art, there is a great buying opportunity in here because it's not just about the risk of the event. There is a mad scramble for cash going on. So stocks are undervalued. They might still go down a lot worse, but you certainly can see in stocks and credit markets, people are, are people who didn't save and need cash now are selling it in a, in a panic. So, so it's a, it is on average a good time to buy, but you've got to be willing to take the risk that things could get worse through the fall and winter. Yeah. Uh, it's always a balance of risk for, of greed versus uh, risk. Yeah. John, how, how do you, uh, we're talking about selling assets now, but think about, you know, the majority of Americans who don't have a month's worth of savings, they don't have a lot of equity to sell, they're soon to be unemployed. How, how do you, what's the proper public policy towards sustaining them through this shutdown? Uh, yeah. Um, they need, business needs help and, and people need help. There's, in Washington, there's a tendency to just help people, don't help business, but we need businesses to hire the people. So let's, let's keep everybody going. Um, so number one, it would be desirable for people to stay employed, even if on reduced hours, reduced salary, yeah. uh, rather than break that relationship of employer to employee. As, as the director of Hoover, you know how hard it is to hire senior fellows. Uh, if you had to fire all us and then find some new ones, it would be very hard to get Hoover going again. Uh, when you fire people, they lose their health insurance. Uh, so maintaining the employment relationship, I think, is useful. And, and that's why, you know, lending to companies is actually quite useful so that people can at least keep their tie to their employers and, and some money coming in. Uh, forbearance on con consumer debt. Uh, you know, the big problem is not so much buying food. The big problem is paying the rent, paying the mortgage, and not not and and paying your credit card debts, not going bankrupt. That's where now, now you can't send people checks enough to keep that going. Yeah. Uh, you you need to forbear. You need to lend. Uh, our 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 social programs are, are are good. They're designed for regular recessions. So. Uh, as is going now on now, a quick rethinking of the rules. I'll just give you an example. If you do get fired, you can go apply for unemployment insurance. But to get unemployment, uh, you're supposed to show that you're looking for a job. Well, the last thing we want is people out pounding the pavement, uh, having personal meetings and interviews looking for a job. Uh, so that program designed for a regular recession uh, needs to swiftly uh, be designed for a, a couple months of shutdown to help people get going. Yeah. John, can I ask you to go into more detail about credit markets, you know, commercial paper, bond markets, municipal markets? What's, what's going on right now? What's the threat of wide scale uh, bankruptcies and defaults there? And, and is the government policy appropriate 
to helping uh, those investors of that kind of debt. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, those who don't follow these markets, uh, what's going on is the prices of municipal and corporate bonds are falling fast. Because why? Because people want to sell them to raise some cash because they need cash for the next couple of months. At the same time, the markets are becoming illiquid. It's uh, just very hard to transact at any price. Uh, why is that? Well, because the normal the volatility is so high that the normal kinds of people who buy and sell are are stepping away and just they're afraid of uh, of transacting at any price. Um, at times of big volatility, uh, markets, liquidity comes, if I try to sell you uh, a whole bunch of like Palo Alto real estate, Tom, you might say, well, John knows something I don't know that that house has uh, you know, a leaky basement, so mm -hmm. I'm not buying at any price. At times like these, uh, that, that, that asymmetric information helps, makes the markets, the, the risk bearing capacity and, and the worry that you're buying something that the other guy knows is about to go under really make the markets illiquid. So uh, um, with that little lesson in finance, <laughs> I think the Fed's efforts to make markets liquid are, are praiseworthy. Uh, and going forward, we need to think about how to keep larger pots of money on the side ready to make markets. Mm -hmm. Now, the next instinct goes to propping up those prices. And I think uh, here it's very easy to say, uh, oh, markets are illiquid. We, we need to prop up the prices. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous. I think the best system is that you can sell stuff fast, but you're going to take a big loss when you do it. Uh, why? Um, because we need people to keep some more savings around. And if that, and if the government keeps, is the one who's always providing the liquidity, then people don't. If the, if the firehouse is too good, people keep gas in the basement. We are this time on the dry run for next time. This isn't the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would, in short, help the liquidity uh, and then really encourage people to provide liquidity next time around. Uh, and don't be afraid of letting prices drop in a liquid market. Yeah. A couple of times you have uh, mentioned that we're on the dry run for next time. What do you know about the next pandemic that we don't know? Uh, nothing. <laughs> but I, I do think I know something that we collectively aren't paying attention to. Uh, I've been worry warding about pandemics for a long, long time. Uh, if you think about the dangers that face our civilization, um, they are things that happen quickly and unexpectedly when your social systems are, are overwhelmed. Uh, historically, pandemics came fairly regularly and with events of globalization, we've seen them over and over again. Mm -hmm. Stuff travels around the globe to the same way, you know, 1350, why was there a bubonic plague? Because the Venetians started sending sailing ships to the Middle East and brought back rats. Uh, so, uh, our, we, we still have this problem. It takes us, we have wonderful medicine, but it takes that system a year or two to ramp up. We're still prey to pandemics. So uh, we've seen them and the virus doesn't care how many people it kills. So uh, an idea from a virus's point of view, uh, having you be sick for a month without too many symptoms and then kill you is just fine. Yeah. So uh, there's one out there there's no selection against it killing a lot of people. There's one out there that kills 10, 20% of the people that get it and, uh, and that spreads even better. We're selecting for spreads even better. <laughs> right now, we're doing evolution a hand because, of course, the, mute, the versions of this virus that can sit there undetected for longer are going to be the ones that survive. Uh, so this leads to a larger discussion. We need a global, uh, let's get a handle on this, Let's get a handle on the places that are mixing uh, viruses and people and sending these things out. Let's globally be ready to stomp them out fast. The exponential growth, if, if, you had, if we had spent $100 billion last February and this didn't happen, we would be trillions of dollars ahead of the time. So we need a global, robust, anti-pandemic uh, public health system to recognize these are, these are going to be the challenges of the first half of the 21st century. Amazing. Uh, Benjamin asks a natural question, John. It says, with governments and central banks all around the world effectively printing new money, will inflation be a problem at some point? Yes, at some point. <laughs> now, inflation, um, 
Inflation will come when uh, people lose faith in our government's abilities to pay back their debts. Um, that really is the fundamental cause of inflation. So where I, I don't worry about inflation <clears throat> in the short run, I think it's appropriate that our government is borrowing money. It would be nice if we hadn't already borrowed 20 trillion when we want to borrow two, three, five trillion more. The moment that the government runs out of borrowing capacity exists out there somewhere. And that's the moment when inflation breaks out. Uh, not soon, but it can happen. And uh, that's, I think, a reason I, I wish our, our government were spending just a little bit more wisely and recognizing that every dollar of borrowed money does have to get paid back by taxes sooner or later. Mm -hmm. or, or inflation, which is worse. Yeah, but not something you put on the front burner as a concern right now. Uh, no, uh, on the front burner, uh, just make sure that uh, there is still faith in the ability of the U.S. government to pay back its debts. Yeah. Here's a great, here's a great question from Elena. Uh, many emerging markets such as India and South Africa have not been affected much yet. Uh, they are critical and yet traditionally fragile worldwide financial nodes. What do you think the major threat from them to international financial markets is? Is there any way to prevent uh, an attenuated uh, contagion in financial markets due to this? So financial markets, uh, I mean, the fact is poor countries don't have much money. They have a lot of people who could die horribly, but they don't have a lot of money. So they're, if you're only worried about financial markets, your worry is that um, countries like that become a reservoir for a disease that then causes more commercial interruption. I do think, now I, I want to, I, I hope you'll see this question for Scott Atlas when we get to the yeah. medical parts of it. It's quite interesting that this uh, virus is hitting right now only at latitudes like about San Francisco <clears throat> and not yet in, in hotter places. Uh, so that I think there's some hope that it is uh, less, uh, less of a problem there. But we haven't, uh, you know, we've seen it big in, in, first in China and now in the US and Europe. Um, why is it not spreading like wildfire through uh, Latin America, India, and Africa? Part of it is they're less globally connected. So, you know, we, where did we get ours from? Well, people getting off the plane from China. Mm -hmm. The less planes you, people you have getting off the plane from China, and now people getting off the plane from the U.S., the better off you are. But I think that's, a, that's the big public health question. Uh, this, they don't have the ability and the trillions of dollars to fight this as much as we do. Um, so does this, does this sweep through and become the next uh, health disaster in the third world? I hope not. And I hope also that, you know, that, that, uh, that it doesn't become a reservoir for, for staying with us for a couple of years. Yeah. Interesting. Um, let, let me do, we're getting near the end and I want to, I want to, I want to ask you two specific questions of all the policy recommendations that you have heard to help get the economy through this spell. What's the one you like the most? What's the one you dislike the most? Uh, I think um, lending and forbearance are basically the things the government can do to keep the private economy from going bankrupt in the most cost-efficient way. The next step has to be much more detailed uh, regulatory one, which is how to let the economy start up again in a virus-safe way. It's different for every business, for every class of employee. Uh, you know, businesses are, are great at coming up with plans to do it, but now that the government shut us down, the government needs to approve those to get going. But that's really the policy for what we need the plan to get going again so that once again, when yeah. it's you know, June and it's ready to start, they're going, oh, what do we do now? Um, yeah. uh, you know, that's going to take some time. And so I really hope they're working hard on the plan to get going again. There's been all sorts of silliness. Uh, let's not, I don't want to embarrass people too much by calling it out. Um, uh, so I, I don't think that uh, sending checks to voters while politically pop, popular, uh, I don't think it's going to do a lot of good to the problems that are there. And I think we have to watch our pocketbook a little bit. A little bit. Uh, bailouts of specific industries and, and businesses is a, uh, you can tell the worthy sentiment as it was in 2008, uh -huh. uh, but I, I think that's a fraught policy that um, we ought to at least use carefully and uh, because it's gonna involve a lot of political control of those companies as need, as it has to if, if you're giving taxpayer money to people. Yeah, 
Got it. John, this is probably a corollary of what's your worst case scenario question, but uh, Jim asked the following question. How long could the economy go with this level of shutdown and still be revived at the end? Uh, Did we reach a point where we can't bring it back? Is it like a patient on a bed? Uh, I don't think that's a hard and fast question. There's not a three months, two days, five hours and 27 minutes and she's dead uh, sort of thing. Uh, it's going to be already hard. Uh, people who have lost jobs with companies and companies that have shut down, those are going to take time and resources to get going again. So uh, I think the, the, the better the mothballing, the quicker it comes back. Historically, um, it's interesting, historically, the 1918 uh, uh, Spanish flu, I don't mm-hmm. think I'm supposed to call it that anymore, but whatever it was, <laughs> the 1918 flu killed a, a huge number of people, but the economy barely budged and, and was back again quickly. Now, why? Because our governments didn't sh- largely didn't shut things down. They just let people die. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's not, uh, you know, even this one, uh, which, you know, might kill one to three percent, and, and mostly people in your and my demographic who, uh, or, you know, retired or older people, uh, it could sweep through, kill people and not really hurt the economy that much. Uh, I mean, you asked an economic question and there's the heartless economic answer. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a long, the, the question is how much economic damage does our public health response, which is, is naturally more, a lot more uh, concerned about people's lives than it was in 1918. Uh, how much damage does that do? And um, uh, I, I wish I could give you something more than it will see, but you can see, you can tell the signs. Uh, yeah. If you see waves of bankruptcies, if you see masses of unemployed people, consumers, uh, consumers uh, going under, um, the financial system melting down, you know, you'll know we're in for a long, slow uh, slog to get it going again. Yeah, uh, you've already been highly critical of the idea of bailing out certain industries or firms. Uh, could you comment a little bit on the too big to fail idea? And people have pointed to Boeing or the airlines or major financial institutions as being instrumental to our recovery and they need to stick around. How, how do you think through that argument? Yeah, uh, well, I think in general, uh, lending on even terms is better. Than, so let's be clear what we're talking about. So simply a cash gift to companies <laughs> is, is probably a bad idea because, well, first of all, it's irresponsible to just do it. So there will be political strings attached. And some of those strings will be worthwhile. Uh, if companies are going to get a cash gift, I'm sorry, you can't go load up on debt and get yourself in trouble again. And I think it's appropriate to say you can't hand it out as bonuses or, or send it to your shareholders. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, um, Elizabeth Warren was on the news today saying, and then I want union representatives on your board of directors. Well, you know, you're opening this up to what's the political cost for a bailout. And you can see you know, it ends up to sort of nationalizing companies. Um, if, if they get bailouts, I think it's appropriate that they are not allowed to borrow a ton of money going forward. Yeah. Um, so it opens that political uh, Pandora's box. Uh, so lending is better. And bankruptcy is not the end of the world. So liquidation is that tears a company apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, bankruptcies, remember, um, I, I'm not advocating for it, but I want people to understand that it is bankruptcy is protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter 14 bankruptcy uh, tells creditors you can't grab those airplanes mm-hmm. because you're not getting paid your debts right now. Those mm-hmm. airplanes stay with the company and you got to sit there and, and eat it. Right. Uh, so in some sense, bankruptcy wipes out the shareholders and the creditors who signed up in return for their big returns to bear the risk in the bad times yeah. and keeps the company operating. Uh, that's a tool that we just shouldn't mistake bankruptcy for a big crater where there used to be a company. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, I'm trying to look, we've got so many questions, John, it's kind of exceeded my bandwidth on processing them. Um, do you have any comments you want to make or any ideas you want to share here? Well, I'm, I'm just take the questions at random because I'm enjoying uh, what all our listeners are coming up with. Let me say, I'm trying to pick ones that we haven't addressed. Pawan pa says, this stimulus is a short-term rescue plan for keeping the economy going. But when this does go back to normal, what do you think the negative consequences of infusing a trillion dollars into the system are? Well, we got to pay off the money to start with. <laughs> uh, there will be whatever terms and conditions came with 
the stimulus, um, you know, if it involves bailing out companies, what, what did we ask for those companies uh, in return? Um, uh, and if it keeps going, uh, you know, it's going to be a trillion dollars a month worth of this stuff. Uh, and um, it sets, you know, everything we do sets the plan for next time. And I do think that now everyone says it's a terrible time to think of moral hazard in a crisis. Uh, but we are figuring out how we get through this. And if every crisis is going to be the government sends you a gift of money, uh, our government's going to run out of money pretty fast with that. And it gives people all sorts of bad incentives. We really need to uh, have people and businesses take a little more responsibility to um, put some savings aside to have some backup plans. Uh, so a little bit of pain this time is not the end of the world. Uh, John Susan asked a very interesting question. Uh, during World War II, industries uh, or firms like the Ford Motor Company converted to making necessary materials. Why aren't industries converting to manufacturing medical supplies and equipment? Interesting question because I think Ford is in fact starting to do that. Uh, can't, the, can't the president order this to be done? Uh, that is a great, great question. So why are we in such a mess right now? Because we don't have enough ICU beds, ventilators, and face masks and a trillion dollars a month pays for a lot of that stuff. Um, a trillion dollars a month reflects the cost to society of not having that around. I, I, you know, we only have like 50,000 ICU beds. Uh, that's about $20 million a month per missing ICU bed. So uh, obviously we need as fast as possible to get masks, gowns. In China, they had enough masks and gowns and protective stuff, I gather that there's essentially no transmission to health workers uh, who, who were helping people because they were able to throw away the mask and gown after. It seems like a little thing, but that's really where our economy is stuck. So how do you get that stuff? Um, when you're building tanks and planes for World War II, maybe you got to tell companies to do it. But uh, I, I think the profit motive is something uh, worthwhile considering. And uh, since we're throwing around a trillion bucks a month, um, I think if you simply bought stuff at whatever price, uh, I don't think there's any problem with industry wanting to, as fast as humanly possible, make the stuff we need. So you don't need to go commandeer uh, companies and tell them, invent vaccines, uh, start making masks, start making ventilators, start, start doing ICU beds. It's not like they're sitting around saying, we don't want to do this stuff. Uh, if you simply paid them 10 times what it cost them, we would, we would get a, an enormous supply response. So I don't think we're at the moment you need to commandeer industry. Uh, I think just pay it and get out of the way. We've yeah. seen there's been a lot of regulatory roadblocks that the CDC wasn't letting people develop their own test kits. Yeah. And I know why we don't have test kits. So I think we're, we're learning a lesson there too on, on regulatory roadblocks. Uh, you know, let pharmaceutical companies make money by selling us drugs, then they would have invested in, in drugs for this kind of stuff, but they kind of knew that they'd never be allowed to make the money off of it. So the price system works fine even in a public health crisis. Um, and even in World War II, there was some commandeering, but there was also a lot of, we're gonna buy you, buy ships from you at whatever it cost. And, and they got a lot of ships. Got it. John, here's a question from Leah. She wants to know, uh, how will this crisis impact the residential housing markets across the country? Uh, yeah, I was just talking to my realtor about that. Um, uh, the future, it's awfully hard to forecast, especially about the future. Uh, now, all asset markets are taking a dive. So uh, let's just, let's, I'm gonna think, uh, right off the top here, there's always supply and demand. So who's buying your house at a high price? If, if you're counting on somebody cashing in a lot of stocks because they feel like, boy, they, they made a bunch of the stock market and now it's time to buy a big house, that buyer's gone. <laughs> so I, I certainly think that uh, there's going to be at least a pause in residential real estate. Um, Palo Alto will probably remain as ridiculously expensive as ever. Uh, transactions will go down for a while, but the tech companies are, are going to be fine. They got a ton of cash. They have plenty of opportunities. Uh, they still don't let you build houses around here. So, yeah. you know, 
I, again, forecasting any price is dangerous because then I know we'll be wrong. Right. But I don't see a route. In, in as long as the economy is in this, we're going to shut down. Uh, we're going to get through this. There won't be a wave of businesses failing, and then we'll start up again like a snowstorm. Uh, we, we shouldn't have a collapse in in housing values. And I hope then we get back to the real problems, which is the, the, all the, the limitations on building, which have caused these housing crises around. House prices should go down. Houses should not be this expensive. But that's yeah. another issue. That's another issue. Uh, Colton asked an earlier question, um, and he, I think he's challenging your value of the price and profit system to help ameliorate this problem. And what he brings up is the fact that, for example, lots of states are now competing and bidding against each other to try to get necessary medical supplies. And his question basically is, how do you think about the balance between uh, government-coordinated economic responses versus market-based or profit-based economic responses? And aren't you, aren't you overvaluing the former at the expense of uh, the latter at the expense of the former? Well, the market allocates to he or she who's willing to pay the most, which is uh, a rough and ready guide to where it's the most useful. You know, suppose you pass a rule, governments are, uh, state governments are not allowed to fight each other over uh, supplies. Well, then some board of supply has to decide where they get them, and they're going to do a much worse job. Uh, the states, yeah, the states are going to bid up the prices. Good. How do you get a supply response by bidding up the prices? Uh, we're spending on budget a trillion dollars in this stimulus. Uh, we're costing the economy a trillion dollars a month. Uh, saving the government money by they have to pay, pay $2 for a face mask rather than $4 for a face mask is just a trivial amount in this immense uh, amount of money. So uh, we always forget uh, there's a supply response, and that's what we need right now. We need that supply response. So uh, even in crises, the price system is, is a great uh, way to do things. I want to thank John for his comments uh, and, and hope to see him again sometime. I want to also thank all of you for attending today. Our next virtual policy briefing will be tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern. Kevin Warsh, the Hoover Senior Fellow and former member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, will discuss the implications of COVID-19 on monetary policy. You can join tomorrow's briefing at the same link you signed in on today. You can also find more research on the coronavirus by Hoover Institution Fellows at our website, hoover.org, under the COVID-19 tab. Again, I want to thank all of you for attending our briefing today. I want to encourage you to stay healthy and well, and we hope to see you at some subsequent Hoover event. Thank you. Have a good day.